Welcome to the Stronger by Science podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Lindsay. And we have a great show for you today. Uh, This is our first episode of the new season and also our first real, like, non-fireside chat episode of the new podcast lineup with with me and Lindsay on the mics. And uh, yeah, season's back, baby. We're we're excited for the return of the pod. Um, from now until, yeah, I, I don't want to say exactly when, but at least at least a few months from now. Uh, expect new episodes in your feeds every two weeks. Uh, it will be alternating with the newsletter we also send out every two weeks. So it'll be podcast week, newsletter week, podcast week, newsletter week. You you get the point. Um, Lens, do you want to do you want to talk about the newsletter real quick? Yeah, yeah, I'll just talk about it real quick, just so people know what it is. Um, I think it's a good complement to the show. It's something that Greg and I collaborate on, where he writes a review of a recent paper, and we publish that as an article on the website, and then I kind of edit that down into a really digestible version for Instagram and for the newsletter. And so if you want to get just really concise uh, reviews of recent research, we send those out every other Wednesday along with other articles and things like that that we publish on the website. So we really try to keep the quality of the things that we're sending you in your inbox high because we know that a lot of people will just spam you. But I think it's worth signing up for. And you can do that at strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter, or there's a form right at the top of the homepage. So just strongerbyscience.com. Absolutely. So just to get this out of the way early, uh, for longtime fans of the podcast, uh, you might notice that uh, previously it was Eric and I on the podcast. Now it is me and Lindsay. Uh, So there's a bit of a change there. Uh, Eric has has moved on. so ha- happy trails to him. He is he is no longer working with Stronger by Science. He's taken a job. Uh, he's taken a research position working at Duke in Herman Ponser's lab. Um, so you know, gonna gonna be doing a lot more primary research on things like the constrained energy model, energy expenditure variability. A uh, lot of exciting stuff. A uh, lot of lines of research that that have interested him for years, so uh, we're we're very excited for him, and we we wish him nothing but the best in his future endeavors. But here and now, at Stronger by Science, the the show must go on, the podcast must continue. Uh, people people demand their audio content, so we are carrying on, Lens and I, and uh, I, I'm excited. I, I think this is going to be a lot of fun, um, but. You know, th- this is a new podcast lineup, obviously. So uh, the the dynamics are probably going to be a little bit different. The banter is probably going to be a little bit different. The uh, exact kind of like segments and formula of the podcast uh, will will probably change and be somewhat up in the air for a while, while we settle in on a format and dynamic that feels good to record and that the audience enjoys as well. So uh, yeah, there, there's probably going to be a bit of experimentation over the next couple of months. And so uh, if, if you could, we would very much appreciate it if you could just give us a little bit of grace while we settle into a new podcast format. Uh, but we, we're, we're, we're very excited and, and optimistic about where this thing is going to go. Um, 
One more thing to note is a popular segment of the old podcast was a just kind of like rapid fire Q&A segment where we tried to get through as many questions as we could relatively quickly. Uh, one of the things we want to try with, with this new season coming back is a slightly different approach to Q&As. Um, so one, one of the things that always felt a little bit weird about the Q&A segments before was uh, just us picking a question and reading it and then immediately launching into answering it in our own voice. Like uh, sometimes, no, I, I, should, I shouldn't admit this, but sometimes it's hard to read on mic and then people are like, does this guy not know how to read? Is he illiterate? And like, honestly, <laughs> may, maybe a little bit, but uh, you know, it's it's a lot of pressure and people might like phrase things weird or like use weird punctuation, whatever. Like it's, it. Eh, I, I didn't feel like that flowed as well as it possibly could have. It's also best for people to pronounce their own names. That seems like a difficult thing as well. <laughs> yes, yes, that, that is also true. Uh, and, and and as someone who has a name that that is frequently mispronounced or or misspelled, that that's something I'm sensitive to. Um, so yeah, we're going to try something new with the Q and A's. We've set up a new email inbox that is podcast at strongerbyscience.com. And if you have a question that you'd like to have answered on the show, uh, record a voice message and send it to that email address. That is again podcast at strongerbyscience.com. Try to keep it under 30 seconds, but just just being straight up with you, if it's over 60 seconds, we're not going to listen to it. Um, we, we just don't have time to do that. And just for for the benefit of the show, that would just kind of kind of drag, I guess. Yeah, it's um, like a, a third host almost. Right. Somebody just writes in a 10-minute voice memo. Yes. So if you if you have a question, we would love to answer it on the show. Send us a voice message to j just record a voice memo on your phone. Send it to that address. Uh, that is how we are going to do Q&As. But again, keep it snappy. Try to keep it under 30 seconds. Definitely keep it under 60. Uh, beyond that, you know, standard, uh, standard things to get through at the top of each episode. If you're looking for an excellent uh, nutrition app that will coach you along as you try to gain weight, lose weight, maintain weight, uh, take take a lot of the cost of decision making uh, off of your plate. You should check out our nutrition app, Macro Factor. If you're looking for a excellent coach uh, to help you pursue any fitness or body comp related goals you you could possibly have, check out Stronger by Science Coaching. We have a team of excellent coaches there uh, who who would love to help you out. Um, if you're looking for a research review to keep up to date with, with all of the cool research coming out uh, related to strength, strength sports, physique sports, getting jacked, getting ripped, etc., check out Mass, uh, Monthly Applications in Strength Sport. Um, I guess it doesn't have a formal uh, link to this podcast anymore. I, I left it a, a couple months back. Eric is no longer here. But guess what? It still fucking rocks. It's a great, it's a great product. You should check it out. Um, it's still just absolutely cooking. And the the person who replaced me at Mass, Lauren Colenso Simple, uh, her her contributions to her first few episodes have have been very strong. Uh, replacing me with Lauren, I think, has been a clear upgrade for Mass. So if if you haven't checked it out, or if you subscribe before, uh, and and you're 
you're curious about what's what's going on there these days, check it out again. It's awesome. Uh, and finally, if you'd like uh, good supplements on the cheap, check out BulkSupplements.com. Use code SBSPOD at checkout, and that will that will get you a discount on your order. Uh, and finally, if you'd like to keep up to date with what we're doing, uh, and, and in particular, if you'd like to connect with like-minded people to discuss the show, or, or just anything else health and fitness related that's on your mind, uh, check out the Stronger by Science Facebook group and or subreddit. Uh, good folks there, and that's, that, that's probably the best place to just get in touch with us generally. Um, so yeah, let's, let's hop right into it. Let's do it. Um, so if, if you listened to the, the last Fireside Chat episode, you, you probably got a bit of an introduction to Lindsay already, but uh, I, I shouldn't admit this since I was previously the host of the Fireside Chats, but not, not the main episodes. Uh, a, a lot of people skip the Fireside Chats. We, we realize that. So th- this will be a lot of y'all's uh, first introduction to Lindsay. So um, Lindsay, Lindsay is my wife. Uh, and she is also probably the person whose whose content you've actually consumed the most of at Stronger by Science, even if you didn't realize it. Um, if you follow us on social media, if you get our newsletter, any of that, uh, that that's all Lindsay. Um, she's she's the she's she, crafting your words or Eric's words previously into something. It's they're not my words. I'm just editing and kind of finessing them for the platforms they're being Ed, shared on in, in just the, to be just to be fair to everyone creating content well in the end they they are they are your ultimate words okay anyway um she's she's the person who has been running the show behind the scenes this whole time um she is she is the reason that stronger by science is actually a, a business and that i'm not living under a bridge somewhere um and she's she's gener- generally excellent and great, and I, I think you're going to like her a lot. And germane to this podcast, her her formal background is in journalism. Uh, she she has a journalism degree, um, you know. And and after getting out of school, working in journalism for a while, she was she was ahead of the curve in in realizing that. It is, in fact, and has always been the line fake news media. So <laughs> she, she left it behind for the much more noble world of uh, blogging, of blogging, <laughs> of, of fitness blogging. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so you know we're we're gonna like like I said at the top of the show, we're going to experiment with with the format and segments a little bit. But we kind of think Lindsay's beat is probably going to be kind of like light media criticism almost like like keeping yeah. keeping up with what is going on in in the media and health and science journalism more more mainstream stuff than we typically cover on the show um and, and things that may not be on your radar but maybe should be because you're likely to encounter them on social media or you might hear about them from a friend or family member and they'll say like hey what's what's going on with this and if you're just like all aboard kind of the evidence-based fitness content universe. It, it may be something that you're kind of like peripherally aware of, but haven't really dug into um, that, that, you know, for, for generally understanding what's going on in the industry and what's going on in just different niches of the fitness industry, 
you, you probably you probably should know about, or at minimum, stuff you'll probably find interesting. Just just knowing what's going on in in the broader industry. Um, so that is that is probably what your beat is going to be. I think so. Yeah. S- and I think like what'll be cool about it is I'll keep my eye on you know the news articles and what's being shared on social and stuff, and I can come into these episodes and give a broad overview of these different topics and then we can tap into your knowledge of the research um which is something that i don't have experience in it's like reading research so we can kind of bring those two things together to present like a really cool well-rounded overview of different fads or like weird things being shared around or just like fun things that we think the audience is going to find amusing exactly so um you have a segment prepared. I do. Yeah. So this is the first one of those. (laughs) Take it away. Take it away. Yeah. Let's do it. So what we're going to be talking about is uh, vibration plates. Greg, do you know anything about vibration plates? I know a little bit about vibration plates. Uh, I I have some firsthand experience with them. There, there is one at the lifetime fitness we go to and uh, I I like it. I think it's fun. What Um, do you like to use it for? For, for just like generally stretching, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, like a, a stretch where it might otherwise otherwise feel like it takes 20, 30 seconds for things to start kind of relaxing and, and loosening up. On a, vib- on a vibration plate, it might take, it, like perceptually, it feels like it takes maybe a little less time, like 10, 15 seconds or something like that. Um, and, and really more than anything, I just, I just think it's fun. Um, yeah, I, I'm a I'm a novelty seeking creature, and it's like a, a weird little sensory experience. So that that's that's mostly why I use it. Um, but yeah, um, I I do know a reasonable bit about it, but I don't know all of the content you plan to cover. So I I don't necessarily right. want want to scoop you. <laughs> um, but I do know that there. They're often used and recommended, at least in the clinical world, for people who um, might have like low strength or low like bone mass, bone mineral density, right. and also might struggle to do more conventional exercise. Um, so it's it's a sort of low intensity thing people can do that doesn't require them to generate the the movement that still has at least like some of the benefits of some types of exercise. Um, so I, I know that that's generally what they were developed for and kind of the, the more clinical uses of them. But, but I'm less, I'm less aware of what people try to use them for if they're not in kind of a, a clinical population. Right. And there are a lot of people trying to use them for things that are not in a clinical population. And that's how I became aware of it is, um, I guess it's a skyrocketing thing on TikTok right now. Now, I am deeply uncool, so I don't learn about TikTok trends from TikTok itself, but from newsletters that are talking about popular things on TikTok. Um, So... That's a little embarrassing, but that's how I learned about it, is uh, is an article um, from Beth Skorecki at Lifehacker. And yeah, so the vibrating plates vary in size and price. 
There are the ones on Amazon. And these are the ones that like a lot of the girls on TikTok are using. And they're like, you know, cheap, $100 or so. And they look like, kind of like scales. And you either stand on them or there, I saw videos of people lying on them, people like kneeling on them, uh, lots of just getting crazy with it. Um, and they go up to like $7,000. So like the one that's at our gym is kind of the top of the line model. And that one is like thousands and thousands of dollars. And those are the ones that are probably being used in the research. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of people using them in non-clinical, for non-clinical purposes. Um, but there are also a lot of different types. Um, there's whole body vibration, low intensity vibration and localized vibration. I think the big, the big one that's at our gym is a whole body vibration one. And then just like the smaller ones that, that can't shake you as hard are Mm -hmm. the, the low intensity ones. Yeah. Um, but so the, the people on TikTok and, and why these are getting really popular right now are saying that vibration plates can be used as a means of exercise and to aid weight loss. Hell yeah. So (laughs) there's actually a gym I found um, whenever I was researching this in Colorado that is, the entire gym is just full of vibration plates. And all of the exercises are just people doing various exercising while standing on $7,000 pieces of equipment. Dude, I want to know where they got the money for that. It's so expensive. It's expensive to outfit a gym in the first place, but at least like most other pieces of gym equipment have a reasonably large footprint. Mm -hmm. So they they take up space. So there's like a finite amount of just money you can put on the floor of a gym. Like, dude, these these aren't that big. Like it it had to have been so expensive to outfit that gym like right. per, per square foot. And it's just rows of them. Yeah. Like 30 of these $7,000 things and then, you know, only one person can use it at a time per class. So, I have no idea how that's going to work, but they're trying it. That that seems that seems like a weird um a, a weird piece of gym equipment to go up to someone and be, and be like, hey, how many more sets do you have? Like, can, can I work in? Cause like, <laughs> That's not going to work, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because most of the time people are going to be focused on the exercise at hand. But if you're just doing just like body weight squats or whatever, like you're, you're going to be able to make full eye contact. You're going to be able to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's also going to... You, you don't have a good excuse to get out of it, I guess, because it's like, ah, well, it's, it's going to be annoying to change the weights out. Like, I, I'm, I'm just I'm just getting, like, apprehension of, like, theoretical social anxiety that I would experience, like, going to that gym. Yeah. Yeah. And just, like, talking to somebody while they're vibrating. Yeah. That feels weird, too. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, like when when I use it, when you say something to me and I I respond, I don't think my voice sounds like super fucked up, but I just expect that I'm going to sound like, um, I I don't know if kids still do this. I assume they do. This seems like a a fun kid thing for all generations, but just like yelling into a fan. Yeah. Yeah. Talking (laughs) through a fan. Yeah. That's, that's how I expect my voice to come out when, when I'm on a vibrating platform. Yeah. But yeah, there's a whole gem of them. People are really into this right now. Um, and 
yeah, trying to trying to use it to to lose fat. That's kind of the main thing that's being pitched. Mm-hmm. And it seems like they're kind of doing it in a spot reduction way as well. Like mm-hmm. I saw a video of a girl like she was lying her stomach on it and said it was like for spot redu- reduction of belly fat and then like lying her butt on it and saying it was going to help her grow like better glutes. Uh, so so it so it sounds like they're promoting it as like in everything wonder machine. Yeah. If you if you want <laughs> yes. if you want to make something smaller, guess what? This will make it smaller. And if you want to make something bigger, it'll make right. it bigger too. Yeah. How yeah. how does it know if if it needs to do biggering things or smallering things? Who fucking knows? Who knows? Yeah. They're there's very a cool. there was an article that I read that kind of listed out a lot of the claims, and it really is just literally everything. Mm-hmm. It'll aid weight loss, burn fat, improve flexibility, enhance blood flow, reduce muscle soreness after exercise, build strength, and decrease stress hormone cortisol. So you love that it. Yeah. is that's a lot. <laughs> it- Man, if if all of those claims are true, I'm shocked that not everyone already owns one and that they haven't just taken everything over, which makes me wonder really makes if maybe wonder. not all of those things are true. Yeah, yeah. So, Greg, have you seen any of these videos or heard people talking about this or seen people using these in the past? You know, I, I haven't really. Um, the These... These devices themselves have popped up like in my social media feeds, but yeah. exclusively as ads. Like the the manufacturers making them uh, are just like putting putting them in my feed and saying like, "Hey, you you should you should buy this product that we're selling." I don't know if I've ever come across any like organic content from someone who is just like. Uh, a happy user and is saying like hey i do this you should do it too which also who knows how much of that is paid promotion but that's uh, true yeah i've never i I, i'm i'm aware of these devices but i've never seen them in the wild in any way that even like smells organic like it's all it, it has for me at least always just been like a straightforward ad yeah yeah i mean it's probably in circles that you just don't really get content for i am sure that's true (laughs) but uh what would you what would you do if you saw this amazon description for one of them that said it helps your body process fat 30 times faster than running um i feel like this is why you're not saying stuff like this they know that you're gonna what (laughs) you're just gonna get angry how i mean how do you measure that just, no, just it, it it go it goes back to something more basic than measurement. Like, how are you operationally defining process fat? Like, is great question. Is it di- is it digestion and absorption? Is it is it lipolysis? Uh, is it like actual like beta oxidation? Like, what what what? There there are so many things your body does to process fat. Right. Uh, what 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 are they talking about? Yeah. We should ask it as a question on the Amazon page. See what the, <laughs> see what the manufacturer has to say. Uh, one of the other things that a lot of the the listings on uh, the sales pages for these things claim that it works as a lymphatic draining machine, mm-hmm. which I've been seeing this phrase everywhere recently, and I I do not know what it means. Yeah. Okay. So your body has two circulatory systems basically 
And one of them, uh, everyone knows about, and it's, it's your blood. You got your veins, arteries, capillaries, whatever. Mm-hmm. You also have a, a parallel circuit, yeah, like kind of circulatory system, your lymphatic system, which, um, I don't, I, it, it does, it does a lot of stuff. Um, the probably two most noteworthy things is, um, so like when you, when you eat fat, it's like fat itself isn't water soluble. Your blood is mostly water. So for, for fat and, and things like cholesterol to get transported around your blood, um, it needs to be uh, packaged up into these little things that are water soluble, or at least like aren't going to separate out. So like chylomicrons, uh, your your and and like HDL, LDL, like those, those lipoproteins are basically like little storage vessels to transport stuff around in your blood that otherwise wouldn't be able to to mix well with in they, they wouldn't be they wouldn't go well in an in an aqueous solution. Mm-hmm. So. When you eat fat, your body, instead of absorbing it and sending it into your bloodstream like it would with amino acids or carbohydrate, it sends it to your liver via your lymphatic system where it's then packaged up and and can be released into the bloodstream. So that's one thing your lymphatic system does. Um, But it's also where like a lot of like immune cells like that, that's... I mean, you're, you you have immune cells in your blood too, obviously, but like your your lymph nodes, like they create lymphatic fluid that has a lot of immune cells in it, and that's kind of like a, a primary place where those immune cells are created and then kind of passed around the body so that they can get to where they need to go. Um, and so the the idea of lymphatic drainage is is people have this idea that like if your <laughs> if your lymphatic system gets i guess like quote unquote backed up oh gosh um that it, that it can make you like look puffy like i, I when, when people talk oh. about lymphatic drainage i think they're mostly thinking about it in terms of like their their like cheeks or like neck yeah appearing like puffy and swollen um because like you you have some lymphatic tissue right. there and so when people do like a lymphatic drainage massage, it's basically just kind of like a face and neck massage to feel like you're like pushing that lymphatic fluid down, like out of your face so that you'll appear less puffy. Um, that doesn't seem like it would work. I, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I don't know if that's a thing or not. Yeah. To, to me, it seems like it's a scam. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, if, if it makes a difference in appearance, it could just generally be from like stimulating blood flow to the area Mm -hmm. um or who knows i mean maybe maybe it is actually kind of pushing that lymphatic fluid down yeah because that that is that is a real thing that can happen like if you're if you're sick like your lymph nodes get swollen right you can palpate it like you can feel it like yes those tissues can swell right vary in size but i thought there's Um, really nothing you can do about it i mean so I'll 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 admit I have not looked into claims related to lymphatic drainage. Yeah, sorry. But that is This is just something that I keep seeing and I was like I'm going to make yeah. him explain this to me now. That is the assumption people have when they make claims right. about lim- lymphatic okay. drainage. Okay. Okay. And so I guess they think that standing on these whole body vibration things is just going to kind of wiggle the fluid down. I I guess. In a way. I guess. Um, 
yeah, that that <laughs> that strikes me as an implausible claim, but who knows? Who knows? Yeah. So with the all the other claims that they're making, it seems like the main mechanism that they're proposing is that it like being on a whole body vibration plate is going to shake you obviously and it's going to force your muscles to contract and relax dozens of times per second to me that seems kind of wild like it doesn't seem like that would be a thing that could happen and i don't know if it does happen what you could actually expect the results to be Mm -hmm. what do you think about that so that is i i would i would rate it as kind of true okay um so your your muscles contract uh in part voluntarily and in part involuntarily and a lot of involuntary like involuntary contractions are are, ref, are reflexes by and large and those reflex arcs are mainly to respond to sort of like perturbations in what you're experiencing mm-hmm. Um, when you need to be able to respond before your brain would have time to process something and you to be able to consciously formulate a muscular response to whatever you're experiencing. Um, and so what, what a vibration plate is doing basically is you have this platform that's good, that is just going up and down like uh, a tiny bit. Yeah, the, the, the cutoff I've seen in the meta-analyses for kind of like, is it vibrating a lot or a little, is three, I think three millimeters. Mm. So if it's going up and down more than three millimeters, they're like, ooh, that's that's a large amplitude. If it's less than three, they're like, ooh, that's a small amplitude. Okay. Um, but it's it's essentially like when it's, when it's dropping, like mm-hmm. when it's going down, um, you're experiencing slightly less gravitational force than you otherwise would mm-hmm. because it's... It's it's kind of like um, when you're standing in an escalator and it starts going down. Like as it's accelerating downward, momentarily you feel a little bit lighter. Yeah. And then conversely, you get in an elevator and like right as it starts accelerating up, your your body's yeah, still trying you to go into the floor, so like you feel a little down bit heavier. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. So it's it's basically that, right? But just very very fast and very very small movements. Um, I'm just imagining somebody going up and down on on an elevator like thousands (laughs) of times trying to get these same effects. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so, so that's basically what's happening. Yeah. And so as a result, the gravitational, like the, the downward vertical forces your body is contending with are slightly less when the platform is going down Mm -hmm. and slightly more when the platform is going up. Um, So there, there's like a, a, quickly oscillating uh, uh, band of force your your muscles are experiencing and trying to to maintain like equilibrium homeostasis balance and whatnot against um, and so I don't think a full accounting of exactly mechanistically uh, what, what vibrating plates are doing like I don't think there's like a full mechanistic accounting of it but the current hypothesis, is that it's basically activating little little reflex arcs mm-hmm. um, between the muscles and the spinal column instead of like having to go all the way up to the brain to where, where it's basically like telling your muscles like very rapidly like hey force demands have changed contract a little harder ooh force demands have changed contract a little less hard and just 
just rapidly back and forth over and over again. Um, and I've, I've seen that termed the tonic vibration reflex, but it's, it's basically just, um, yeah, just a, a re a reflex arc that you're using repeatedly, like multiple times per second to try to find the appropriate level of like muscle force production to match these like rapidly oscillating demands. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, in, in kind of the, the main central motor drive probably isn't changing much, if any. So you could conceptualize that as like, oh, your muscles aren't contracting 60 times per second. There's, it's just one contraction, which mm. you would use to like stand up, maintain your posture, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um with just like a, a little sort of like, like with with reflex arcs, kind of like editing that slightly. So it's one contraction, but it's it's getting a little stronger, a little less strong, a little stronger, a little less strong, due to the feedback from those reflex arcs. Or I guess you could conceptualize it as like thirty to sixty actual unique different muscle contractions per second. But I I would kind of go the first route. Yeah. And it's not something that you're feeling, right? Like you don't feel like your muscles are contracting when you're standing on one of these. Or does it or does it feel like it is doing something? No, you just feel like you're vibrating. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's that's um, what I assumed. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 not something you would feel, I don't think. Yeah. And it's certainly not something you're like you're consciously having to contract your muscles super fast. Mm-hmm. But it's it's those little reflex arcs that are just just modulating muscle contractile force to respond to the very rapid perturbations they're feeling and experiencing. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, so I think the where where we want to go from here is um, going through kind of the history of these uh, these pieces of equipment because something I found interesting and why I wanted to talk about this is. When you see the videos of people using uh, the plat- the platforms and stuff on TikTok, it seems like it's just going to be a complete scam. Like, mm-hmm. But when I start talking to you about it, it seems like there is research. There is actual a, actually a purpose for using these in some contexts. And there actually is a really rich, interesting history of people using whole body vibration in different ways as well so let's get into that i think uh let's let's go over the research after the history and you can tell us a little bit about where these um, pieces of equipment are actually useful um but for now i want to tell you about the history of vibration that sounds great i am so excited i I know nothing about the history of these devices. They they showed up in my awareness in maybe like 2009. And uh, I, I do not know anything that preceded that. Okay. Well, it actually started way earlier than I would have thought with the ancient Greeks and Romans. So obviously they don't have like these platforms, but people have been finding ways to vibrate for a long time. So they were creating special carts with irregularly shaped wheels and then driving the carts over uneven ground to increase the level of vibration. And they thought that this was going to speed up the healing process. Hmm. So it's basically just like you're taking a super bumpy ride and 
if you're ill or if you have an injury, this is what they're making you do. I wa- I wonder if uh, I wonder if there was just like a guy who really sucked at making wheels, but was like a great salesman. He was just like, oh, that's incredible. He's like, dude, I yeah, you you say that I made the worst wheels you've ever seen, but what if? What if they're actually the best wheels you've ever seen? Because not only will they get you from A to B, they'll also cure all of your maladies. They'll heal you. Yeah. 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 So Seneca even described this practice in some of his writings, saying it was beneficial for preserving his health. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, They also did something extremely wacky, which was wrapping saws, like the things that you use to cut things, in cotton fabric, and then running them back and forth over an injury. So over an injured part of your body, using the vibration from a saw running back and forth over top of that wound. Hmm. And they thought that that was beneficial. You know, so that it, it, I think that sounds bad because it's a saw. Yeah. But... Did their saw suck? I mean, well, well that was still the Bronze Age. So like, mm-hmm. yeah, their saw sucked. Um, but also like, that doesn't seem too ridiculous i guess yeah because like there there are little um they're like personal massaging devices i guess that like like these these aren't popular anymore but like i remember them from my childhood Mm -hmm. where they they were basically like um like plastic uh okay what whatever so they they basically look like miniature anal beads i guess (laughs) Where it was just like a, a plastic thing with just like little little beads uh-huh. on it. I know what which, you're talking about, yeah. Like not large enough beads to like actually be functional as anal beads. Okay. But like that, that sort of deal. That's good to clarify. Um, and you, you would just like put it over your leg and just kind of yeah. go back and forth. Right. And the, yeah, like the, the little bumps, like it would apply different levels of pressure as it went over the tissue and like feel kind of nice. Um. And I mean, like, if you wrap a saw in cloth, like that's that's functionally what it becomes. Like, it's it's not going to cut you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just going to it's basically just going like to be little bumps. bumps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, like I I don't know that it, it's it, it seems like a, a barbaric way to get about the same effect. But they also uh, they they didn't have plastic back in the yeah. day, so like yeah, whatever, whatever. I guess it's good it's good to realize that the saws would be quite a bit different. The thing that I imagine when I think about this is a relatively sharp saw and somebody who is using the saw on you and is just going wild with it and is sawing too hard and the saw starts going through the cotton fabric no, and I'm, they don't realize. I'm sure they put And then they're just cutting your it. wound. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. That, 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 I, I, I think that that was probably less dangerous than it sounds. <laughs> it's still funny. Yeah. Um, so that's that's like the very start of recorded history on using vibration for healing purposes. Um, and then we're going to jump way far forward to uh, the 1800s. And there's a Russian physician and inventor called Gustav Zander who developed an apparatus that used weights and pulleys to create a vibration that was supposed to simulate riding a horse because mm. they thought riding horses was like a good level of vibration. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was kind of funny because people also use vibration plates for horses now. Like that is a modern thing. Whenever I was Googling around about this, there are like ginormous vibration plates 
that horse people will buy for their their fancy horses because they think it's going to help the recovery and also hoof growth. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That that sounds. I hope the horses enjoy it. That that either seems like something they would love or it would just terrify them. It says it said like in the stuff that I was reading that it helped the horses relieve stress, but I'm mm. like. The horses can't tell you that. Yeah. How do you know for sure? Yeah. And they're just in their little pens on the vibration plate. And the vibration plate looks like it would kind of take up the whole pen. So, yeah, so it's so, like they they don't have a choice. Yeah. They're just standing there vibing. I do think, I don't know. I do think, so I'm completely talking out my ass here. I do yeah. not know that much about horses. But I, that's good. I, I think they're, I think they spook easy and like they, like, I think if they're stressed, you know about it. Yeah, that's true. So either, I, I think either, yeah, it, it, they either like it or they're just like they're fine. Pa- yeah. paralyzed with fear. Or they might just be <laughs> fine with it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this guy, this this Russian guy also developed um, the belt exercises that were popular in the 1900s through like 1930. And then they got really popular again in the 50s and 60s. And it seems like this is a type of vibration plate that a lot of people have seen. It's like you have um, a belt strapped around your torso and that is the thing that's vibrating and Mm. it's kind of like vibrating your belly. And so that's another thing that people thought like for spot reduction, they thought they were going to like vibrate the fat off of their torsos. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I clicked on the link. I, I have seen those things before. Right, yeah. that's what I figured. Um, and then in the late 1800s, guess who shows up? Who? Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. My man, hell yeah. This guy is wild. You, you know you're in for a good time when John Harvey Kellogg shows up in he a story. He was trying everything. But so he created a vibrating wooden chair that he thought would um, improve circulation and alleviate constipation. But do you want to tell the listeners what some of the other wacky things that Kellogg did were? Yeah, so he was... Um, do, do you remember this, right? I, I remember he was like in a minority religious sect, but I forget which one it was. I think it's Seventh-day Adventist. I, I was thinking that's what it was, but I didn't want to accidentally put Seventh-day Adventist on blast. Um but yeah, so he, he 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 kind of had like two two guiding lights. Um, one was that like any any sort of like non procreative sex was like bad for you and and would like drain your body's vital essence. <laughs> um, and also he he was he was one of the first. Uh, I mean, I'm sure he wasn't one of the first. I'm sure this goes back a very very long way. But he was one of the first, like, kind of modern, all health is about gut health type of guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was, like, really into enemas and particularly, like, yogurt enemas. Yogurt? Um, That's too thick of a substance. Uh, so it, I, I think it was, like, yogurt cut with water. Um, and I, th- I think that he was kind of on like the gut bacteria tip like ah there's good bacteria in yogurt so it's like if you're if you're gonna do an enema anyways may as well throw some yogurt in there yeah no Um, i actually see something about this on the history.com page that i use to learn about 
the his use of vibration plates. Mm-hmm. So he was an advocate of yogurt enemas, but his just regular water enemas, he created a system that pumped 15 quarts of water oh. per, per minute. Oh, what? What? That sounds That's, unpleasant. Oh, yeah, that yeah, we're we're going to move right on from that. Um <laughs> You're the one who brought up the enemas. You at you asked me what weird stuff he well, was, was up the, to. It was you, one of the first things you thought of. You okay. If you know that and someone says what weird stuff was this guy up to? That's the weirdest thing he was up to. Like you got to there was yeah. There was no world where I wasn't going okay. to bring up the enemas. Fair enough. Um but anyway, yeah, so he uh, he thought that, like, sexual lust and desire, and in particular masturbation, was just, like, just real bad for you. Yeah. It would, it would fuck you up real bad. Um, so Kellogg's breakfast cereal, it, it is that Kellogg, mm-hmm. um, it was intentionally made to be as bland as possible because he was basically working on the assumption that kind of, like, all excitement and arousal kind of stemmed from the same source. And so if you ate food that excited you too much, that would also like sexually excite you too much. So like I think he's just telling on himself there. I mean, he he very well may have been um but yeah, so he he founded uh the, the Battle Creek Sanitarium in mm-hmm. Battle Creek, Michigan, mm-hmm. and a lot of kind of like high society people who were feeling like they they were in a funk, uh not stoked about city life feeling low energy they would go to the sanitarium and just have a bunch of weird stuff shot up their butt and eat the worst food possible yeah uh and and do a bunch of like low to moderate intensity exercise for like two weeks yeah and then go back to the city and say damn i'm feeling good yeah well Um, one of the things they could do is is to sit on this vibrating wooden chair that look i that feels like it's kind of antithetical to the whole like don't don't get aroused type of deal. That's what I'm saying. I mean, one of the things he specifically said was that the vibration chairs would, quote, stimulate vital organs in the lower abdomen. I, I, I'm sure <laughs> they did. Um, he may have not thought quite expansively enough about which organs it would stimulate. Right. Well, in this article, I also saw that one of his treatments for if you were if you were having thoughts of masturbation was to literally put a cage on your dick. So maybe you were sitting on the wooden chair with a with a little cage strapped onto you, which that, makes it even more unpleasant. Yeah, that's not that's not great. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm not even gonna touch that. I I know <laughs> I know entirely too much about like the weird shit John Harvey yeah. Kellogg did in attempts to stop people from masturbating, and that it's that, it gets much darker. Yeah, that honestly is one of the tamer ones. Exactly. That's yeah. that's why I brought this one up. Yeah, it's it's pretty grotesque. Yeah. Um, but back to the vibration plates. He also created a steam powered version. Um, that was like a seat for five people, so you and your boys could do it together. Hell yeah, <laughs> that rocks. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just threw in a couple other things here about other treatments you could get at the spa, um, including a beating and slapping machine, which gave patients the choice of being pounded or flogged. And the purpose <laughs> of that was just to stimulate circulation, which I feel like there are much better ways to stimulate circulation than. Having a machine flog you. Yeah, go go for a walk. Yeah, take a jog. Go for a walk, yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah. 
I was delighted that John Harvey Kellogg had something to do with this, and we could talk about him a little bit, but unfortunately, it's time to move on. Oh, no. Okay. So the rest of this is is much more tame, but in the rest of the 1800s, there was a type of vibration therapy that was developed for treatment of Parkinson's disease, and it seems like uh, researchers still um, do studies about this, Mm -hmm. so... It's kind of cool that they started picking up on that 200 years ago and have been investigating it since then. I think maybe you'll talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. Um, And then in the 1900s, scientists in the Russian space program started using vibration therapy to help strengthen astronauts' bone mass and muscles. And NASA continues to use vibration therapy to help prevent bone loss to this day. Nice. Um, And then... Uh, after they had the success during the space program, the Russians started using this on their Olympic team. Um, and I think this is the first indication of it being used for athletic pursuits. Mm-hmm. And then in the 1990s, uh, Gus Vandermeer, a Dutch Olympic team trainer, developed the power plate. And this is like the big vibration plate. Yeah, like This is okay, the one that's okay. at our gym. This is the one that the Colorado gym has like 30 of. Um, so yeah, it's this Dutch guy in the 1990s who develops it for, um, Olympic athletes in the Netherlands. Um, and that gets us to today. That's, that's the history of vibration. So all the way back to ancient Greeks and Romans using this for healing purposes. And then in the nineties started using it for, um, athletic purposes. Mm -hmm. And now the girlies on TikTok. Laying on little vibration plates. Nice. Hell yeah. Um, yeah, so the the I the idea of of people getting into this as kind of like a miracle cure, um, or kinda of, it, it feels like it, they're they're approaching it almost as like an exercise hack. Like it Definitely. will get you all the benefits of exercise without having to put right. like any effort into and it. And they're doing it for like hours at a time oh that's which is not good that yeah Ooh, man yeah if, if i would have known they were doing that i would have looked into this more because i kind i don't so when i was looking through the research on this i didn't encounter that much about like ultra high dose vibration yeah. hmm well i think that it's definitely abnormal for somebody to be doing it yeah. for two hours a day but there definitely are kind of the influencers saying mm. that they they do it for that long. I think most people who are using it are using it because they are trying to kind of use it as a hack for exercise. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that if you if you feel like you're really busy and you don't have time to exercise, you're probably not spending two hours just like lying down on a plate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I did want to note that some people do use it for hours at a time. And vibrating yourself for hours on end is probably harmful. It seems like most of the research that's been done on stuff like this is people who... The research that's been done on, like, the harmful effects of vibrations is people who work, um, like, in construction jobs or something. So it's, like, occupational hazards. Yeah. And obviously that can have a lot of negative effects. That's what I was thinking. But I was like, ah, is the frequency, is the amplitude different enough to matter? Because, I mean, for, uh, for, like, the the orthopedic outcomes for, like, a jackhammer operator is really not good. Yeah. Yeah. 
And even like long haul truckers, yeah. I think have a elevated risk of like spinal disc injuries because you're in a spine flexed posture and yeah. the, the truck vibrates more than like most automobiles would. Um, so yeah, like I, I, I didn't want to like, well, I, I wasn't plan- planning on like directly bringing those things up, but that, that's the first place my brain went yeah. when you said they're, they're standing on them for two hours because I'm like, ah. Those types of vibrations may be enough different that it wouldn't generalize, but like I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, so research stuff. Um, the the general tenor of the research. So, so one like one thing just to start with 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 this body of research. When you said that you were doing this topic, mm-hmm. um, I. I, I will admit I had not looked into the research on on whole body vibration mm-hmm. uh, much at all. I mean, like a, a paper or two would come up in the journal suite for mass from time to time, but this is never a topic of research that I had done a deep dive into. Yeah. And when I started, I discovered something interesting, which is that this is one of those fun little bodies of research where it where it feels like there are like three meta analyses per like piece of original research that's been done. <laughs> that doesn't make um, sense. Like if, if you just if you just PubMed search whole body vibration meta analysis, you're gonna get a lot of results. Mm-hmm. And like I think there are probably more pieces of primary research than review articles, but like it's it's very close. And generally it's it's not that close. Weird. Which I don't know what's causing that, but it's it's convenient for me because I would rather just kind of like skim a dozen reviews then have to skim 60 individual papers so it it was good for getting my feet wet nice um and what i found basically is that in a extremely small scale way vibration plates do seem like they mimic some of the benefits of exercise Mm -hmm. in that Standing on a vibration plate requires a little more muscular effort than just standing on not a vibration plate. That makes sense. Doing light body weight exercise on a vibration plate, since you're like activating those spinal reflex arcs over and over, it's a little more challenging than doing a similar exercise not on a vibration plate. Mm. Um, And it also seems like the kind of like high frequency stimulation and the activation of those res- or of those reflex arcs might be helpful for um, some people with like neurological conditions that might struggle with kind of the central motor drive and, yeah. and keeping their muscles working well. So, so like you, you Parkinson's, mentioned Parkinson's. Yeah. Um, and it also seems to potentially be particularly useful for like analgesic effects of exercise so analgesic means like pain relieving Mm. and there there was a meta on people with like knee osteoarthritis and it it seemed like um for just like reducing pain a little bit that that vibration Hmm. plates may be um so so like all, all exercise has i don't want to say all Exercise in general, for the most part, has analgesic effects yeah. and like is beneficial for people with OA or yeah. just like other kind of pain conditions. Um, and so there's like some suggestion that maybe vibration plates are like a little bit better than normal exercise for that stuff. 
um, because it helps kind of like desensitize some like other reflex arcs that may be like driving some of the the pain perception or it could just be that um it's a it's a different enough sensation that it kind of like Mm. that like if if you have chronic pain some of the pain you experience might be due to the expectation of pain when you do something right and so like just just since it changes the sensations you're experiencing distracts your brain a little bit yeah 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 um so yeah like it, it might be kind of helpful for that um but yeah like that that's basically the lay of the land um so it, it for the most part for for people without neurological conditions or uh like oa or like chronic pain conditions or anything like that it basically seems like a way to make easy exercise ever so slightly harder mm-hmm. um and so for outcomes like like strength outcomes for for instance or like there have been a few studies looking at uh, changes in vertical jump height what you generally see is that in studies where you where you test vibration plates on like high level athletes and people who are already like quite good at whatever mm-hmm. skill you're going to test it doesn't really seem like they do too much yeah um Whereas if it's a population where, say, just body weight squats would would be sufficiently intense to have a positive training stimulus and like cause strength or or jump height or like explosiveness type adaptations, the slight elevation in intensity from the vibration plates. And I mean, there there might also be just some motor learning effects from like activating those reflex arcs and mm-hmm. like kind of almost like greasing the groove a little bit um, and like making like getting you maybe a little bit better at activating those muscles. Like there, there was another meta on uh, they they termed it neuromuscular activation, but it it was just like, like surface EMG type data. Mm -hmm. Um, So like it, it may be helpful for that. Mm -hmm. So basically like if you're, if you're like basically untrained and doing like sets of 10 body weight squats on the ground would be good for you doing sets of 10 bodyweight squats on a vibration plate might be like slightly better for you than the 10 bodyweight squats on the ground. Yeah. But if you're someone who would need to do, say, 10 squats with 400 pounds to actually <laughs> cause some sort of, of beneficial right. effect, doing those bodyweight squats on a vibration plate probably isn't going to do anything particularly right. useful for you. Definitely. So it, it, it seems like, like kind of kind of useful for clinical populations yeah. uh, and, and elderly populations. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't even mention that. Um, so there there have been quite a few studies looking at this in elderly populations, and it seems like it may help with, uh, like, preservation of bone mineral density a little bit. Mm-hmm. That, that one is kind of up in the air. Like, there have been, like, three or four metas on this. Like I said, entirely too many meta-analyses in this area. And depending on, like, what aspect of bone mineral density they're looking at, like, are, are we looking at the trochanter? Are we looking at the spine? Are we looking at, like, whole body measures? Mm-hmm. Um, and just, like, the inclusion-exclusion criteria for the studies. It's just kind of a coin flip about whether they're going to see, like, a small statistically significant effect or a small not statistically significant effect. But it, it seems like it has kind of a a possibly beneficial effect on bone mineral density yeah. that's that's trivial to small in magnitude. 
Um, and it also seems to help with like balance and maybe fall prevention in elderly people as well, mm-hmm. which, which also goes back to those reflex arcs. Like um, there, there are a lot of reasons that, that falls increase with age, but one of them is like your, your reflexes get less reflexy. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, just, just keeping, keeping them a, a little, a little more kind of like honed than yeah. they would be otherwise. Same in practice. Yeah. So yeah, kind of useful for old people, kind of useful for, uh, people with like certain neurological conditions and sort of useful for untrained folks. Um, prop, probably not particularly useful for people listening to this podcast yep. except for people who might be dealing with some sort of chronic pain mm-hmm. do you know if the research where they found it being useful for um, some of those populations if they were using the whole body vibration or if it was like lower intensity vibration i th- i think it was mostly whole body vibration yeah okay. um yeah, when 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 you said you were looking at whole body vibration, I'll I'll admit I didn't look at research on local or lower intensity vibration gotcha. like, at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Um oh, did you I so I thought you were going to say one more thing about uh p- people using it for fat loss. Um but I can just go ahead and say what I what I had highlighted to, <laughs> sure. to mention about that in particular. Okay. So you you said that the the TikTok girlies are using it to promote fat loss. Yes. All right. So this is one of those things where um, they are directionally correct, mm-hmm. but but practically far off base. So it does. It does take a little more energy to do anything on a vibration plate than it would on non-vibrating ground. Um, So energy expenditure and therefore fat oxidation is ever so slightly higher than than it would be otherwise. Mm -hmm. But the impact itself is extremely trivial. So this is from a a meta-analysis on on the topic, and, and there have been two. And both of them were very funny because they um, they both found, uh, so comparing whole body vibration to either like control or like similar exercise without whole body vibration, both of them found a statistically significant impact, like, like beneficial effect of uh, whole body vibration platforms on fat loss. Mm-hmm. But both of them made it extremely clear that like, Yes, we found a statistically significant effect, but it is not clinically meaningful. Yeah. It's a it's it's nothing. Like we there are a handful of studies, the effect they saw was very consistent, so therefore like we had we had the power to detect this small effect. Well we're we're talking like over a like 12 to 24 week intervention like one additional kilo of fat loss. Like that that's the sort of effect magnitude yeah. you're dealing with. And so yeah, the, these these meta analysts were just like this is a significant effect, but don't take it seriously. Like don't don't take this and run with it. Significant doesn't always me- mean meaningful and uh it's it seems like people didn't entirely get the memo. Yeah. Um somebody must have pulled that and yeah. started spreading it. 
Yeah, because I mean, they, they can say like, yeah, a meta-analysis found that this increases fat loss. Because like, it does. But again, probably not to an extent that actually matters. And um, so here, here's like a fun, a fun quote from one of these papers. Um, Despite the increased energy consumption and oxidation of fat, Ritveger in 2010 stated that a person weighing 70 kilos while performing whole body vibration would assume would consume approximately 20 liters per hour of oxygen, assuming an energy equivalent of 20.9 kilojoules per liter of oxygen and a caloric equivalent of 39 kilojoules per gram of fat. That would imply a weight loss of 10 grams of fat per hour. Uh, <laughs> thus, it is reasonable to conclude that this type of exercise produces no loss in fat mass as the duration of whole body vibration is insufficient to elicit the desired reduction in body fat. So basically, like for, for Americans listening to this, there's like, what, 454 grams in a pound. So if you're oxidizing an additional 10 grams of fat per hour on one of these, mm-hmm. you would need to spend 45 hours on one to burn one additional pound of fat. Oh, gosh. So and don't do that. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the TikTok girlies are not wrong in mm-hmm. that it does... It does technically have an effect but it is an effect that is so small and would take so long to actually manifest to a a measurable degree that uh yeah just like going for a walk would be definitely way better yeah (laughs) just go for a walk yep so that that does it that does it yeah my first segment vibration plates now we know they are useful for some things and some populations but don't buy one just to lie on it on the floor. Especially for seven grand. Like you can Oh yeah. You can have way more fun with with seven grand doing Definitely. just just about anything. Yeah, yeah. But maybe if there's one at your gym, hop on it. Try stretching. Greg yeah. seems to like it. Yeah, I, I do like it. Like it's it it's fun. It feels nice. Um yeah. but I I would not drop that money to buy one for the house. Definitely. Um, okay. Well, if anybody has any ideas for, or if you want to hear me talk about any other trends that you've seen or articles that you're wondering about or that your friends and family are asking you about and you want our take, then let us know. And I'm excited to do more segments like this. Yeah. And, and you can use that email address podcast yep. at strongerbyscience.com for that as well. If, if there's a, a topic in, in the media uh, or just that, that the TikTok girlies or just some other uh, a branch or click of the fitness industry yeah. that we probably the bros don't are watch doing. that closely. Yeah, let, let us know. Let us know what, what you'd like to see us cover. All right, let's 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 shift gears to my segment, okay. if that's cool with you. Let's do it. All right, so um, I'm talking about... Uh, Exercise during pregnancy, mm-hmm. um, covering content very similar to a, a research spotlight back in April. And um, so, yeah, Linz, when, when you think about exercise in pregnancy, like what, what comes to mind for you? Like what, what sorts of exercise do you think would or wouldn't be a good idea? And, and more importantly, whatever ideas you have about exercise in pregnancy, where, where, do, you think those, where, where do you think those ideas came from? Yeah. So I think generally, I think that exercise during pregnancy seems like 
a good thing to do. I know that most people are encouraged to maintain a certain level of physical activity during pregnancy for the health of themselves and for the baby. Um, in terms of things that feel safe or not safe or like a good idea or not, um, I don't know. I've been around... I think I've been around, since I've been around lifting for so long, I've been around pregnant women lifting. And so it doesn't freak me out in the way that it seems to freak a lot of people out. I think in terms of lifting, maybe bench press seems kind of weird. And I I just think that that's like, oh, yikes, don't drop that on your belly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Obviously, most people shouldn't be dropping the bar on them at any point, though. But that's... That's really the only like lifting activity I can think of that if I saw like an extremely pregnant person doing, it would make me nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, probably like super heavy squats or something too. Yeah. Um, just like any degree of like really straining pretty hard when you're pregnant. Yeah. Seems maybe not great. Um, and then outside of lifting. Hmm fighting sports <laughs> don't well, do that well yeah it's it's not fair like you're 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 bringing a tag team into a solo match like <laughs> you have two people fighting one person yeah. like obviously pregnant women shouldn't do fight sports yeah. they, they would dominate that's, that's not what i was thinking but oh, you're, okay. t- you're totally right you have double the strength when you're pregnant yeah. and you're gonna fuck somebody up uh you probably shouldn't like climb k2 or everest or something Mm -hmm. do anything that's gonna impact like oxygen levels that feels bad that feels generalizable though yeah you definitely just you shouldn't we can just leave it at don't climb everest just there's so many people who got lost there this year like they're just missing yeah don't just don't just don't do it also don't go down looking for the, the titanic like similar thing just don't just stop taking these risks yeah yeah i I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah, so pregnant women probably shouldn't be deep under the ocean either. Yeah. Another thing that's like impacting oxygen or like yeah. how your body is functioning. Okay. Yeah. Um, but other than that, like I feel like most exercise probably a good idea okay. during pregnancy. And I think I don't think I really had many um I don't think I really thought about this until I was already kind of into lifting and we were together. So I I don't think I really ever had an opportunity to develop preconceived notions of like the danger of lifting while Mm -hmm. pregnant or anything like that. I've always kind of assumed that it was fine. Okay. Um, I've seen lots of pregnant people squatting, deadlifting, and they seem to, they seem to be doing fine. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, there is, I think, still a lot of fear and concern Definitely. out there about exercise. Yeah. I mean, if you see like the brave souls who post videos of themselves oh on God, Instagram yes. squatting while pregnant, people are fucking terrible in the comment section. Like it's obvious that there is like so much stigma and, like, people are going to be telling you what to do if they see you doing that and telling you that you're doing it wrong and telling you that you're going to hurt your baby and hurt yourself. Yeah. Dude, one, one of my favorite types of types of comments there is, um, 
people people commenting on a video of a pregnant woman like lifting heavy and being like ah like straining like that is gonna like it's it's gonna cause infertility it's like what it's like brother they're they're pregnant like (laughs) the the proof's in the pudding like like check the scoreboard like they're they're clearly at, at least somewhat fertile yeah there there was um there was a belief for a long time that intense exercise would cause infertility um which yeah like even if that's something you believe saying that to a person who's currently pregnant it's just like that that doesn't seem to be the person to say that right um but yeah so there is still out there a lot of apprehension about exercise during pregnancy and especially like intense exercise during pregnancy Mm -hmm. and uh a lot of that actually comes from the victorian era um which was kind of like uh like early to mid 1800s to like early 1900s thereabouts Mm -hmm. so kind of like middle to late 1800s was kind of the the height of that era Mm -hmm. um sort of like john harvey kellogg actually like he was he was a a victorian era man um doing some wild shit yeah they were doing wild shit in victorian era yeah and it was um during that period it was a a fashionable uh, opinion to hold that exercise in general was bad Mm -hmm. and that exercise for pregnant people in particular was like especially bad um was that like the heart the heartbeat thing yeah it was it was like a pseudo a pseudo scientific thing Uh so so kind of like when when epidemiology was like kind of in its infancy and you and, and I think people were already aware that the correlation doesn't necessarily imply causation, but I don't think it had been like internalized culturally to to the extent that it should have been. Yeah, um, people weren't shouting at it at each other like they are now. Yeah, and so there there was a lot of just like observational stuff where it's mm-hmm. like, hey, look, the the idle rich tend to live kind of a long time, mm-hmm. and the the laborers who are out there like getting in a lot of physical activity and making their living from the sweat of their brow. They, they tend to have lives that uh, at that time were still nasty, brutish and short. Um, yeah. And so it's like, Oh yeah. Like uh, th- there, there was kind of the idea that the body was almost like a battery. Yeah. And that uh, you just kind of had a fixed number of heartbeats yeah. or a, a fixed amount of like vital energy. <laughs> And you, once you expended it, bada bing, bada boom, that's yeah. it. You're going to die. Had nothing to do with like wealth differences or privilege or anything like that. It's or like, just like ac- access to like nutritious food in yeah, a period where like, like people were still getting doctors. rickets. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Before we like fully dealt with scurvy. Uh, <laughs> they're like, oh no, it's because they're exercising too much. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, th- that was that. Uh, like most of the apprehension we have today still like just comes from the victorian era because Mm -hmm. before that and after that um it's mostly people being like oh yeah like exercise is fine and during that during that one era when um it it it, 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 like it kind of dovetailed with mass media Mm -hmm. i guess because like that's when that's when like the penny papers were were a big thing and and you could, for the first time, like, disseminate ideas, like, very broadly. Like, the printing press had been around for a while, but, like, printed stuff was expensive because, like, paper was expensive. They, right. they didn't have, like, the cheap pulp paper. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so 
it was it was one of the first times that like you could one get a glimpse into how people lived kind of across the socioeconomic strata instead of just kind of the rich people hanging out with the rich people the poors hanging out with the poors like there there was kind of more awareness of what was going on and it was just easier to like disseminate ideas easier Mm -hmm. so I'm I'm sure that like rich fuckers a long time ago were just like, ah oh, yes, our, our idle lives are better than that of the poors. Yeah. Convenient. But like they, they also didn't have a good way to like tell the poors that like, oh yeah, what you're doing is fucking yup. Um <laughs> so, They didn't have a choice anyways. Right. Yeah. So um Yeah, yeah. So that the the idea and certainly like the popularization of the idea that yeah. exercise in pregnancy is like bad and dangerous. That that Lord, like what we experience of that today largely just came from that era. Mm-hmm. But going back before that, um, exercise during pregnancy was generally seen and considered to be a good thing. So, um, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna cite a couple papers uh, in in the show notes to kind of go through some of this historical stuff. Um, one of them is by Miriam Katz, uh, Exercise Activity During Pregnancy, Past and Present. And the other is uh, by, by Downs and colleagues, Physical Activity in Pregnancy, Past and Present Evidence and Future Recommendations. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be quoting from, from those two papers during this, during this historical segment a little bit. Um, but yeah, so, so both Aristotle and uh, Plutarch um, urged Greek women to exercise to decrease pain during childbearing, mm-hmm. um, which which is yeah. something we now know to be true. Right. Women who exercise, I don't know if it decreases pain, but it definitely it increases it your it increases your odds of not having to have a C section. Right. It also like speeds up labor exactly. quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and even up until the 18th century, uh, so like the 1700s, so so pre-Victorian era. Um, maternal physical activity was still generally viewed favorably because um, people believed, and rightfully so, that it tended to result in easier labor and also reduced fetal size, um, like the, the baby's a little bit smaller, a little bit easier to get out. Huh. Um, and and that, that is still true. Like you, Really? Yeah. So there, there's like a, like not big, like two to 400 gram lower fetal birth, rate, birth weight uh-huh. in women who who exercise during pregnancy versus not um and and that so that was actually something that was kind of flipped on its head again during the victorian era it was kind of assumed that like larger fetuses were better like Mm -hmm. it might make for a tougher delivery right but they're like a big strong baby well that that like there there was uh i mean they they found associations that like this is um this is correlated with like lower rates of like infant mortality. Like the, the bigger babies tend to live better, but it was mostly the bigger babies were born into rich families with idle moms. Yeah. Who would yeah. have access to better nutrition. Right. And so the babies could just get bigger. Yeah. And, yeah. and, the, and the medical practice that, that existed of the day. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah. Even a, like from, from fucking Aristotle until the 18th century, it was like, okay, okay. Like maternal physical activity is generally pretty good. Nice. Although by the 18th century, they were, they were recommending uh, maybe no dancing and maybe no horseback riding while, while you're pregnant, which. Yeah. Horseback I, riding does seem weird to al- do while pregnant. Also, I don't think that was 
uh, pregnancy thing. I think that was a like puritanical type of thing. Um, yeah. Anyway, whatever. Uh, They're <laughs> so, like, that's a lewd thing to do. Yeah, you're a yeah. pregnant woman. Have some respect. Yeah, but for for the most part, they're they're like, oh yeah, like be active during pregnancy. That mm-hmm. that's cool. That's mm-hmm. good. Uh, then the Victorian era hit, and it's like, oh no, like you you should be as sedentary as possible, like like the rich who are more likely to have healthy babies. Um, and uh, one one final thing to note before I get off of the like like pre-Victorian historical stuff. Mm-hmm. In a couple of the articles I read, um, like talking about the the history of exercise recommendations during pregnancy, something something I saw brought up multiple times were people saying that like the earliest reference to like the earliest written reference we have to to exercise improving um, like pregnancy outcomes was from the Bible in the book of of exodus damn and um as best i can tell so one like just spoiler alert um that's that's not that's not a thing like there's not there's not a bible passage that really supports this did you read the whole book of exodus last night to make sure uh no but i did read the surrounding context for for the verse being cited (laughs) um but the the citation for this claim that that like the, the biblical writer saying that, yeah. that exercise is good during pregnancy. As best I can tell, it, it just goes back to a single citation, um, a paper by Burnett. Uh, title is Value of Prenatal Exercise uh, in the British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology from 1956. Okay. And uh, the, the author of that article claimed that the writer of Exodus said that slave women had an easier time in childbirth than the the, the like Hebrew slave women mm-hmm. had a easier time in childbirth than the rich, lazy Egyptian women. And uh, Lindsay, as as a graduate of a Christian university, does does that ring a bell for you? No, but I also did not pay close attention in my Old Testament class. Okay, well... You paid close attention in your Old Testament class, though, so does it ring a bell for you? It also doesn't ring a bell for okay, me. Okay, great. And and like I said, that's because it, th- this is one one of the worst biblical interpretations I've seen, which like I kind of expect Damn. from like uh, like Christian influencers on social media. Yeah, you don't expect it from a medical journal, but uh, that's that's what we have here. So the the verse being cited is Exodus one nineteen. Would you mind Would you mind reading that for the people from the New International Version? Sure. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. All right. So that that was the single verse quoted to support the claim that like, yes, even the biblical writer knows that like these these hardy slave women, they they give birth faster because they're uh, they're, they're more physically active. So, Linz, would would you mind reading a bit of the surrounding context Oof. as well? So, I, I can do this if you don't want to. No, I can do it. Okay, so th- this is this is Exodus 1, uh, 15 through Did not expect to be 21. reading Bible verses today. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were... Oh, help me out here. We're, we're going to go with Sifra and Pua. <laughs> okay. When you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. 
The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. All right, so that that's that verse in the surrounding context. Um, so, I mean... The, the midwives just lied to Pharaoh. Like that's that's what's going down in verse nineteen. Uh-huh. Uh huh. They're they're this passage doesn't provide any evidence that the Hebrew women did yeah. actually. They give were just birth like faster. we weren't there. Yeah. We weren't even there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and also like I highly doubt that kind of typical Egyptian women in, like over three thousand years ago were just living a life of luxury. Like that doesn't really seem to track yeah they Um, had shit to do yeah so i mean the yeah so that this was not some sort of like scientific claim that uh that the hebrew women did actually give birth faster because because they were more physically active during pregnancy than the egyptian bizarre to include this in a scientific paper it's two it's two midwives just lying to pharaoh about why they weren't killing babies like they were commanded to do um anyway yeah so uh that that's that's the historical context i guess with with a with a little diversion uh, into the Bible. So post-Victorian era, um, which yeah, kind of ended with World War One. we get into the 1920s, and this is when people started like recommending women be more active, but they were starting from that Victorian baseline uh-huh. of just like, hey, don't, don't do anything. Mm-hmm. From kind of the 1920s onward, we see this slow progression of like, ah, you can you can do a little more. Oh, okay, that's going fine. You can do a little more than that. Yeah. Um. So so you saw like the first kind of, I, I guess like early gyms, like things catering to to pregnant women to exercise, oh, wow. popping up in the 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the the government got involved. I think for the first time in 1949 with uh, the U.S. Children's Bureau uh, issuing a recommendation for prenatal physical activity, saying that in the absence of maternal complications, pregnant women can continue housework, gardening, and daily walks, and even swim occasionally. And for the daily walks, it's uh, up, up, up to one mile, but to break it up into several short bouts, which we look at that. Yeah, what, what, what is your thought reading I mean, that's reading just, that that's not a lot of walking. Right. Um, yeah, so it's, it's basically saying like, Hey, this- you're going to walk that much, just like walking around your house or if they have other kids that they're chasing around. Yeah. Yeah. But it, so it's, it's basically saying like, Hey, look, this, this is the post-war era. Um, you know, women get back out of the factories, get back into the homes. Yeah. You, you can do your house, yeah. your, your housewife shit and like <laughs> maybe walk a little bit. Um, yeah. And that's that's about it. Which but don't go too far. Which we look back now and we're like, whoa, that's extremely restrictive. But yeah. but for the time, like mm-hmm. this this was the first government guideline saying like, hey, women, like you you actually can and should be a little active during pregnancy and not just you know be in the bed as much as possible. Yeah. Um, then moving on into the 70s and 80s, you see more just kind of like general recommendations for, quote, moderate physical activity. 
Um, and most of them were kind of like focused on improving maternal fitness and going all the way back to Aristotle, easing uh, labor and delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1985, uh, ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, mm-hmm. issued their first guidelines for prenatal physical activity. Um, and they basically said that like, hey, most most like moderate intensity aerobic stuff is fine, but you should maybe be a little careful with high impact activities, which, uh, you know, we're not talking like skydiving by, <laughs> by high impact. They mean like <laughs> running. Cause like there's uh, the impact of each footfall. Uh-huh. So like, you know, you can walk, you can cycle, you can swim, maybe be careful with running. That might still be a little bit too much impact. Okay. Um, and, and if you run, don't go more than like 15 minutes at a time mm-hmm. and still at a, at just a moderate intensity. Don't get your heart rate over 140 beats per minute and, mm-hmm. and make sure your core temperature doesn't get elevated too much. So mm-hmm. that's still like quite a bit more restrictive than the guidelines today, mm-hmm. but we're seeing like a big step in the right direction Definitely. from, from what people were saying in 1949. Then in 2002, uh, ACOG had another uh, updated guideline that is now, instead of saying like you can do most of this stuff, they're actually recommending that women be active uh, during pregnancy. Um, so they, they're recommending 30 minutes of moderate intensity physical activities most days uh, for pregnant women without medical or uh, obstetric complications and they also I- instead of saying like hey some of this aerobic stuff is fine but like running that might be kind of dangerous they, they um, gave like a much a much broader range of activities mm-hmm. that saying like ah oh, yeah most most of this stuff is safe um, so that was 2002 and then in 2008 we see um, the the first recommendation for uh, actually allowing any vigorous intensity physical activity at all. Nice. So up up to this point, it had all been low to moderate intensity. Yeah. The 2008 recommendation recommended uh, at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity per week for pregnant women, again, without obstetric or, or medical complications. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, these recommendations for the first time put guidelines in place for vigorous intensity physical activity. Um and those those recommendations were essentially like, if you were already engaging safely in vigorous exercise before pregnancy, right. you can keep doing that. Um, mm-hmm. You want to monitor it closely, talk to your doctor. But like, if you were already running pretty hard, yeah, before you if you're got already pregnant, in that good shape, yeah, yeah, you you can you can keep doing that. But you you probably shouldn't if you haven't been doing vigorous physical activity before yeah. or. If you're going to start, you need to be, like, super, super careful about it. That um, makes sense to me. Just yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, th- th- that's... Th- by 2008, we're, we're getting guidelines that look pretty similar to what we have today. But mm-hmm. that was a long process. Like, from basically the, the 1920s up to 2008. Yeah. There, there It was like, hey, don't... If you're going to walk, cap it at a mile and break it into little chunks to like, hey, if you were already doing vigorous exercise before, you can you can keep with it. Yeah, it it took from 
yeah, like ni- the 1920s to 2008 to get yeah. that far. I mean, that sounds like a long time, but I'm actually struck by like the, all the increments within that mm-hmm. and what it would be like kind of generationally each time where, you know, if you're pregnant, your mom and your grandma are going to have totally different ideas of like what you're supposed to do when yeah. you're pregnant and are going to tell you that and mm-hmm. are going to tell you that you're doing things wrong. Um, because it is like really a huge shift each generation. And and what they're telling you is probably stuff they heard from their doctor. Exactly. Yeah. Just re- reflecting the guidelines right. of the day. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the most recent uh, ACOG guidelines were published in 2020 and they were just reaffirmed earlier this year. And just kind of like the, the TLDR is like most stuff is on the table. Um, so we'll, we'll link the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologist exercise recommendations in, in the show notes if you, if you really want to dig into this for yourself, either because you're, you're pregnant, planning to become pregnant, or train a lot of pregnant people. Um, we're, we're not going to go through them in depth here, but kind of the broad strokes is like, yeah, like most, most stuff is fine, um, with a few exceptions. So the current guidelines are still pretty leery about vigorous intensity exercise for people who aren't already accustomed to it. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of like some edge cases, which like you, you actually brought up like quite a few of these, uh, when, when I asked you about this, just at, at the start of this, uh, this segment, but um, they say that, that pregnant women shouldn't scuba dive uh, <laughs> because there is the inability of the fetal of fetal pulmonary circulation to filter uh, bubble formation. That makes sense, yeah. Um, Did th- not evolve scuba diving. Correct. Yeah. What, so, um, yeah, n- never mind. We're, we're not going to get into gas kinetics. Yeah, let's not do that. Um, but but yeah, and and then going the opposite direction, low pressure. It's um, they're still like kind of leery about exercise at altitude for women who live close to sea level. Oh, Although really? if you live at altitude, it's like ah, you can you can keep doing what you were doing that was going fine before. But like so, like if you went to if, if you're Denver, from, yeah, if you're from Miami and go to Denver, it's like ah, maybe maybe be a little careful. Okay, um, but. that was kind of more couched in terms of like we so we'll as we'll see like these recommendations are like intentionally conservative Mm -hmm. they're they're not they're not going to recommend they're not going to recommend anything unless they're very very confident it's okay yeah and for for the exercise at altitude there they were just like well it's it seems fine for women who already live at altitude there are certainly like reports of women who live close to sea level going to altitude going for a hike and being fine yeah. but like we don't have enough controlled data on this to be like really confident that, makes that it's sense. safe yeah um and, and there there are still also concerns about exercise in the heat especially uh long duration or high intensity because yeah. dude exercise in the heat and um especially if you add a dehydration component to right. it that that puts that that like taxes uh your circulatory system like crazy yeah because like you're you're needing to maintain blood flow to the brain to maintain consciousness you're needing to maintain blood flow to the muscles to actually keep moving keep exercising you're needing to maintain blood flow to the skin Mm -hmm. uh for thermoregulation and sweating um and uh yeah and if you're pregnant you also need to maintain blood flow to the fetus as well yeah 
And so even take the fetus out of the equation and managing all of that blood flow and oxygen delivery during exercise in the heat is a is a large challenge to everyone. Right. So add a fetus into the mix, shit gets dicey. Yeah. Um, and and also, uh, I'm pretty sure that if you're first trimester and maybe don't even know you're pregnant yet, getting overheated can cause neural tube defects. Oh um, yikes! So yeah, like it, you 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 want to be careful with the heat. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's uh, th- those those are some of the things that that. Uh, ACOG still expresses some some trepidation yeah, about. Does make sense to yeah. me. And, and for our purposes here, there are three more that are relevant to lifters, and that is very heavy resistance training, uh, mm-hmm. supine resistance training, or supine exercise in general. So that's exercise where you're laying on your back. Oh yeah. And uh, the Valsalva maneuver. Uh huh. So um, why why do you think those three things might be something that that there would be recommendations against or at least like caution with. Yeah. So supine, I mean, I said bench pressing as one yeah. of the things. It, I, I don't know. Maybe just <laughs> dropping things on your belly. Okay. I don't know. I don't know what else. What are what are other supine exercises? Uh, like hip thrusts. Okay. Or like glute bridges. Yeah. Um, leg raises. Um. Like huh. e- even sit-ups, I guess, at least for yeah. the, the while you're down part of it. Um, I don't know, like peck flies, I guess, <laughs> like dumbbell peck flies. I mean, they're... Yeah, the, you, you, I'm really not sure. I do, don't know. Yeah, you do most exercises like standing or mm-hmm. something. Definitely. There, there are a few you do in yeah. your back. So I'm not sure why they would recommend against that in that okay. case. For like Valsalva and heavy resistance training i'm guessing it's just like uh like blood pressure related yeah and just like uh the intradominal pressure that you have to have for valsalva or if you're you know doing a like picking up a heavy squat bar off the rack or something like and also just you know you don't want to fail a lift probably Mm-hmm. And you don't want to get like lightheaded and potentially pass out or something. Yeah. So for for Valsalva, you nailed it. For supine and heavy resistance training, there yeah. there, there are a couple other considerations. Okay. Um. So yeah, the both heavy resistance training and the Valsalva maneuver are cautioned against due to concerns about the very large increase in blood pressure that can occur mm-hmm. when you're like yeah. really, really straining and especially really straining while doing the Valsalva maneuver. Yeah. Um, generally with exercise, what you tend to see is systolic blood pressure goes up, diastolic blood pressure stays like pretty flat and like maybe elevates slightly, but not a ton. With resistance training, you get an increase in diastolic as well. Mm-hmm. Um which can be further exacerbated with an increase in intra-abdominal pressure doing the Valsalva maneuver. And basically, like, your your systolic blood pressure can get really high if you're going on a hard run. But, like, diastolic stays kind of low, and, and they know that kind of those blood pressure kinetics, the, the fetus can deal with them just fine. Yeah. But when systolic and diastolic go up, that's just just high pressure the whole time without any sort of reprieve during mm-hmm. during the the heart cycle um so like like there's not 
just like direct evidence that that's bad but it's basically like we, we know the other thing's good or the other thing is like safe enough but like we don't know that that is fine that like that blood pressure yeah. signature is fine mm-hmm. um so they're 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 pretty leery about that um also with with really heavy resistance training during especially the second and third trimester you you have some hormonal changes um your body starts rele- releasing a hormone called relaxin that I mean, it, it does what it sounds like. It, it relaxes your mm-hmm. connective tissues, like your tendons, your ligaments, um, largely to prepare the birth canal for, like, actually giving birth. Nice. Because, um, yeah, like, st- stuff that generally is not moving, it needs, it needs to move so a little bit. So get out bit. of the way. So, yeah, you, you have those hormonal changes, which, which make your your tendons and ligaments a little bit laxer. Yeah. So there's concern that that could increase your risk for like serious uh, sprains and strains. Uh-huh. Or, or even just like an acute, like really bad injury, like yeah. an ACL tear or something yeah. like that. Um, and for, for supine exercise, the concern mostly has to do with the weight of the fetus itself. So two of your two hmm. of your major blood vessels, your inferior vena cava, which returns blood to your heart, and your aorta, which is like your biggest uh, artery that takes blood away from your heart, um, they they basically run like behind your internal organs, pretty near your spine, and so if you have a lot of weight of the fetus that's over them, and then you're laying on your back. The weight of the fetus might push down on those blood vessels, which could interfere with blood flow, interfere with blood returning to the heart, maybe make you lightheaded, maybe make you pass out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's where a, a lot of the concern with supine exercise comes from. But you'd be lying down on your back in other contexts, right? Or do they tell you like not to sleep on your back either? I'm not an obstetrician, so I don't, and I've also never been pregnant, so I don't know what they recommend to you for sleeping stuff. Hmm. I think they do generally recommend sleeping on your side, though. Like I, I'm. It's, yeah, it seems like it'd be uncomfortable to sleep on your back yeah, for that reason. I, I think just like supine stuff in general is cautioned against for yeah. pregnant women, but in, in okay. particular supine exercise. Yeah. Because well, you then might you're be adding additional with blood weight. Flow. Well, you, you might be interfering with blood flow when you're doing something that needs elevated blood flow. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, th- that's that's where the concern comes from for resistance training above like 70, 80% of 1RM, um, Valsalva maneuver, and and supine exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it is noteworthy that the, the caution towards those things in the guidelines aren't based on research conclusively demonstrating that they're dangerous Mm -hmm. it's more so that there are there are mechanistic reasons to think that maybe it could be dangerous um and there is insufficient evidence to kind of like do away with those fears yeah um and it's all like it's it's just generally in keeping with the orientation of of the maxim first do no harm of course um which uh, fun fun little side note about that first do no harm. A lot of people say that that's kind of the the first thing in the Hippocratic Oath. Uh-huh. It wasn't. Uh-huh. Uh, it it did not show up in the Hippocratic Oath. There there were statements in there that kind of had the same vibe as that, but the actual like formulation of the statement first do no harm. 
uh, came from a speech from a physician named Thomas Idman in the 1800s. Just a fun little fact there. Damn, he gets no credit. No. Sorry, he, Thomas. He should. He should. Um, but yeah, so so basically, this th- this is a slow process. Um, yeah. Like expanding the types of exercise that, that are allowed or recommended to pregnant women. Um, it, it took us like... 70 years to get from you can do daily walks but up up to a mile and in several short intervals to uh okay most things are probably fine and if you've been doing vigorous exercise before you can keep doing yeah it. like it, it took it took 70 years to get from point a to point b yeah um good for them for updating it though so much you know yes. i'm glad we got to this point yes uh but but yeah so it, it is a slow process definitely and so let's let's kind of talk structurally about why that is. So, Linz, if if you wanted to change exercise guidelines for pregnant women, how how would you go about it? Like, how how would you set up that that oh. research program? Yeah, I mean, I don't know because like it, it's obvious to me that the reason why these things why these guidelines are the way they are is because you can't be putting pregnant women in dangerous situations when you might be endangering them and the fetus. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know how you study potentially dangerous things without mm-hmm. putting women in dangerous situations. Okay, so I do. Okay, and great. It's, it's you find women who already plan to put themselves in dangerous oh, perfect. situations. Yes. Yes. Um, so yeah, when when uh, doctors or researchers think that a current guideline like this might be a little too conservative, mm-hmm. there's there's generally a two step process to address it. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, you you can't start with randomized control trials yeah because if if the medical consensus is that this thing is dangerous then if you set up an rct uh and you have you have one group doing what you believe to be the dangerous thing and another group just serving as a control maybe doing either nothing or something that's generally believed to be safe there are uh two two outcomes to that study um Either you're right, and the guidelines were too conservative, and like, yeah, this this thing is safe. Like, we can do it. We can recommend it now. Or uh, general consensus is correct, and now you have uh, badly injured uh, pregnant women or dead babies on your hands. Yeah, bad. And uh, no I- dead babies. No. IRBs don't like dead babies. Uh uh-uh. uh Um, there's so there there's a, a principle in uh in research with human subjects that you it's it's so hard to get interventions approved that mm-hmm. there is a reasonable likelihood of of harm coming to your research subjects like there there are some contexts where it's possible mm-hmm. um but it's it's so hard to get those approved, right. and and generally the um, like the the like discriminating factor is like if the if the benefits of it outweigh the risks, yeah, to a large enough degree, like it can't it can't really be debatable, like yeah. So so for example, like a, a drug trial with uh-huh. a drug that um they they think will save your life, mm-hmm. but might also have some nasty side effects, mm-hmm. like. The, the saving your life is a is a mm-hmm. bigger upside than the nasty side effects are a downside. Right. So like you you can you can get that approved, 
But even that might be difficult if the nasty side effects are nasty enough. Yeah. Or if the probability of it saving your life isn't quite high enough. Like it's, Mm -hmm. and and in this case, we're talking about like, hey, there's already so much other exercise you could recommend that is is safe and effective, that uh, improves or at least doesn't harm maternal health, that improves or at least doesn't harm fetal health, that... The, the marginal benefit of doing heavy resistance training versus the exercise that's already recommended yeah. is so small that the perceived elevation in risk that might come along with it, like you're, you're never going to get an ethics board to, si- to sign yeah. off on it. Yeah. So the, it, so it's going to be a two-step process. The first step is you find people who already are doing the thing right. that is thought to be dangerous mm-hmm. and you observe them. Mm-hmm. And if their experiences suggest, hey, this probably isn't that dangerous, then, and generally, it's not just going to be one observational study. Of course, yeah. You have, have like, a few observational studies in the population of interest taking part in the activity of interest, and if if their cumulative data suggests that, like, hey, their, their pregnancy outcomes look really, really similar to the general population or better than the general population, then you can say to an ethics board, like, hey, the current guidelines suggest this is dangerous, but there's a, there's actually a fair bit of obs- observational data now to suggest that maybe it isn't dangerous. Mm-hmm. So can we do a controlled study to see if this is fine? Mm-hmm. And then if those go well, then you generally get updates and guidelines. Okay. And that's basically what's happened up to this point. Mm-hmm. So when they were saying like, hey, don't don't walk for more than a mile, it's basically just like, hey, let's let's find working women who are on their feet uh, while they're pregnant, just like working, moving around more than that. Mm-hmm. Hey, guess what? Their pregnancy outcomes are fine. And hey, now we can do a little exercise study where we have some women not move much and some women walk a couple miles a day. And mm-hmm. like, oh, guess what? They're fine. Their babies are fine. Okay, cool. Like you can you can do some exercise. Like that's that's the general process that all of this stuff has taken. Yeah. And we're we've now reached the first stage of that process for heavy resistance training, Valsalva maneuver, and uh, supine exercise. Cool. So uh, the study I'm going to be talking about is called Impact of Heavy Resistance Training on Pregnancy and Postpartum Health Outcomes by Previtt and colleagues that, that was just published earlier this year. Um, and so, yeah, th- this was an observational study where they wanted to uh, assess the risk of continued heavy weight training during pregnancy. So um, they they essentially wanted to recruit women who were already doing heavy resistance training, who uh, either planned to or had continued doing resistance training mm-hmm. throughout pregnancy, and um, just see, like, hey, do you have negative health outcomes from this? Are there adverse fetal outcomes from this? Um, does this seem to increase your risk of pelvic floor dysfunction? Mm-hmm. Those things like we're, we're going to find people who are already doing this stuff and look to see if the scary outcomes people think will happen, if, if those actually materialize. Um, so yeah, they, they recruited uh, lifters to complete a questionnaire to take part in the study. Um, subjects needed to have uh to to have already engaged in resistance training during pregnancy with loads exceeding 80 percent of one rm needed to be at least 18 years old um and that i mean that was really about it 
uh, and they they got a pretty a pretty solid sample for this. So they recruited a sample of 679 lifters in total, um, who for the most part were either like weightlifters, so like Olympic style weightlifters, snatch, clean, and jerk, or or CrossFitters, and, and there were some who did both, some who did neither, but. It was mostly like weightlifters and crossfitters. I think because they did a lot of their recruiting via social media, mm-hmm. and those were just kind of the people in in their circles. Yeah. Um, and the like the survey itself was was pretty big. Like it it would have taken about twenty or thirty minutes to complete, mm-hmm. and it asked about a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you know it it asked about. What, how did your training look? Like, did you keep training just mm-hmm. as hard? Did you pull back? If you pulled back, when? Um, it asked about... Just uh, asking them to recall previously. This isn't... Yeah. It's not people who are currently Correct. pregnant and like they're observing them yeah, throughout. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it, it was it was like a retrospective okay. thing. Um, and so it, it asked about uh, like actual complications during pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So... You know, did you experience preeclampsia? Did you experience gestational diabetes? Stuff like that. Um, asked about uh, delivery complications. Like, did you need to get a C-section? Did uh, labor and delivery take a super long time or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, asked about, like, fetal health. Like, you know, was was it a clean delivery? Like, is your baby doing fine? Um, and asked about postpartum stuff. Like, basically, how, like, how, how long did it, t- did it take you to bounce back? Right. Um, and just all all of the various yeah. symptoms related to that. And so I am not going to go through all of the results one by one because yeah. that would be boring as shit. And there there are <laughs> there are and I'm not exaggerating. There are literally hundreds of results. Um but there was a digital appendix that came with this article that nice. that we, we can link in the show notes and you can look at every single individual outcome for yourself. But um yeah, just just kind of in broad strokes um, so most of the, most of the women, as you would expect, were in kind of like the normal, uh, childbearing age, like mid to late twenties to early to mid thirties. Um, like I said, most of them either did CrossFit, weightlifting or both. Um, and, uh, about 85%, um, continued engaging in heavy resistance training during pregnancy, 24% said they maintained their training levels until delivery, which I'm not entirely sure what that means. Right. I, I don't think maintaining training levels was operationally defined, mm-hmm. but I, I assume that means eh, like volume, intensity, frequency, like the just the general type of level of effort. Yeah. Like that really didn't change up until the point of delivery, which right. if so, I mean, that's that's very impressive. Um. 72% continued uh, weightlifting, uh, so like snatching clean and jerk style training mm-hmm. uh, during pregnancy. 71% did supine exercise and 34% used the Valsalva maneuver during mm-hmm. pregnancy. Um, and, and just in general, uh, rates of pregnancy, delivery, and postpartum complications were at or below rates observed in the general population. Mm-hmm. So... Um, like rates of gestational hypertension, for instance, were about 3% in this study versus about 7% in the general population. Uh, gestational diabetes, about 1% in this study versus about 8% in the general population. 
Uh, postpartum depression and anxiety, about 7% in this population versus about 17% in the general population. Yeah. Um, the only outcome that, and, and we'll talk about this later, but the only outcome that on its face looked like a negative in, in this group of women was uh, a higher rate of postpartum urinary incontinence than mm -hmm. what's observed in the general population. So it was about 57% in this study versus about 33% uh, generally. Um, although rates of incontinence didn't seem to be predicted by the exercise-related variables in this study. So like the women who kept training hard during pregnancy didn't have higher rates of incontinence than the women who pulled back a little bit. The women who mm. used the Valsalva maneuver during pregnancy didn't seem to have rates of incontinence higher than the women who didn't. So like, yeah, so that that was kind of an aggregate finding, but it didn't seem to be predicted by the actual like exercise variables they were looking at. Right. Um, so, yeah, like in, in aggregate, the results were pretty were pretty promising. Um, and uh, yeah, so as for like the specific concerns of the paper, this is. Um, is this a quote from my article or a quote from the study? I think it's my article, whatever. Uh, but yeah, so um, Olympic weightlifting training, use of the Valsalva maneuver and supine training didn't seem to meet. Yeah, this is from my article. This isn't from a study. Uh, Olympic weightlifting training, use of the Valsalva maneuver and supine training didn't seem to meaningfully affect rates of pregnancy and delivery complications. However, women who maintained their pre-pregnancy levels of training up to delivery had about 50% lower rates of pregnancy and delivery complications than women who scaled back their training mm -hmm. with, with the odds ratio there being 0.49. Um, so yeah, that, that's a, that's a pretty, um, a pretty noteworthy yeah. finding I would say. So, um, Linz, what, what would you take away from these results? Uh, does, does this show study show that heavy resistance training, the Valsalva maneuver and supine exercise are, are safe during pregnancy by, by your estimation? so i think it's definitely enough that you could then take it to a review board if you wanted to do a more controlled trial mm -hmm. um and i think like if i was a pregnant person or if a pregnant person was asking me for advice like i would find this very heartening and obviously like you know you want to feel what feels right for your body but it does seem like this is really encouraging and it's cool to see yeah. that um, some of these questions that remain are starting to get answered. Yeah. What, um, what, what like lingering concerns would you have af after this study? I would still be nervous about doing Valsalva, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and I don't really know if I have a good reason for that other than just like, the description of, of what Valsalva is and like what that does to your body. Um, and it, it just, I don't think, I, I don't think if I was pregnant, I would be um, lifting heavy enough that I would want to mm. do Valsalva. Um, That's fair. Yeah. I gotcha. Um, yeah. So, so like, like you mentioned, this was a, a study where like if you worked on an IRB, you'd look at this and say like, ah, okay, I, I might green light an RCT now. Right. Um, and yeah, like I, I think that's about where I would be at 
as well. But it, it is important to consider that this is observational research. So it can't it can't prove causation. Yeah, of course. So um, like in j- just something to point out is in this study specifically, there are like multiple levels of selection biases going on here. Okay. So the, the population itself uh, in this study probably isn't super representative of the general population because like women who do heavy resistance training are a self-selected subset of all women right Mm -hmm. Uh, and then women who continue performing heavy resistance training during pregnancy are a subset of women who do heavy resistance training in general like Mm -hmm. some some are going to be more concerned and like "Ah, i'm Mm -hmm. just going to train lighter while i'm pregnant um and then, furthermore, women who completed this questionnaire and participated in the study are a self-selected subset of the women who yeah. continue heavy resistance training during pregnancy. Maybe they had a particularly good outcome or, like, they felt really strongly about the way that they decided to be pregnant. And they yeah. were like, I'm going to participate in this study because yeah. I think I did it right. A L- little bit of... Uh, what would that be? Would that be healthy responder bias, social desirability bias, whatever? I don't know. Some some sort of bias. I don't know what any of those things um, mean. Yeah, that that's fine. You don't need to. <laughs> but yeah, so at, at all three levels of, of self-selection here, there are factors that could influence rates of pregnancy, delivery, or postpartum complications. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, just just being a, someone who does heavy resistance training might be associated with other health promoting behaviors, like maybe just generally higher levels of exercise period. Yeah. Um, which, you know, those might be the things influencing the positive outcomes seen in the study rather than the heavy resistance training itself. Um, maintaining exercise habits during pregnancy might be related to maintaining other behaviors that would promote a healthy pregnancy and delivery. Right. So if you're the type of person who's, um, you know, going... So, yeah, I mean, so, like, some some pregnant women kind of, like, take pregnancy as an excuse to be, like... And not... I, I don't want to sound like I'm blaming anyone for anything, but it's just like, hey, like, I'm, I'm going to be the queen for nine months. I'm going to lay yeah. around, going to just, like... I crave ice cream every night. I'm going to eat a ton of ice cream, just watch a ton of reality TV. Mm-hmm. And like, honestly, no judgment. Sounds fun. Like if, if I could get away with that for nine months, maybe I would. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, and like certainly, it, so much about pregnancy sounds fucking miserable. Yes. That it's like, hey, if, if you don't well, want to do exercise as happy, much yeah. and, you're, <laughs> and like that, that's what helps, yeah. helps you get through it. Like no judgment at all <laughs> yeah. for me. Um but yeah, like ju- just in general, like if, if you're yeah. maintaining heavy exercise during pregnancy, it, it seems like you're probably less likely to go that route. Right. You're, like you're probably, probably doing a lot of other behaviors. Yeah. yeah a lot of other health focused behaviors. Yeah. You're, you're maintaining a lot of other, you're probably maintaining other lifestyle factors that would probably predispose you right. to, a, to an easier delivery. Um, and, and then like you mentioned, just by, by choosing to opt into this study, it, it very well could be that, you know, if you did do heavy resistance training during pregnancy and, um, you know, l- like, let's let's say that that did cause a miscarriage. You might not want to volunteer to participate in this study right. and admit that you did something that led yeah. to that outcome, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, like you... you for for all of those reasons, like you can't necessarily draw causal inferences mm-hmm. um, from this data, mm-hmm. 
And second, if there are causal relationships in play, you, we can't necessarily use it to determine the direction of the causation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for instance, like the the finding that um, the women who maintained their pre-pregnancy levels of training had a 50% lower rate of pregnancy and delivery complications in general, that could be because causally maintaining your training level did cause those beneficial outcomes. Or it could be that if you were having pregnancy complications, that caused you to reduce the level of training you were doing. Yes. So both both would result in the same odds ratio. Right. But you wouldn't be able to tease out the direction of that causation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's just like one general general consideration, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like an, another one is uh, like the lower rates of of postpartum depression observed in the sample versus the general population. It, it could just be that if you're someone who is more prone to depression generally, which causes, you know, like lethargy, low energy, like a a lack of desire to exercise. Mm -hmm. It it could just be that if you're someone who is just generally predisposed to depression, you're going to be someone who's like less likely to exercise and vice versa, Mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, like it's hard, it's hard to know, like if, if these are causal relationships, what is the direction of that causation? Um, so yeah, there, there's there's still some significant caveats, but uh, I, I think the general takeaway is is basically what you said. Um, this is just like heartening information that suggests that like these things that are generally thought to be dangerous may, again we don't know, but may not be quite as dangerous as people yeah. currently fear. Yeah. So yeah, we'll we'll hopefully see another small handful of observational studies and then that get people comfortable enough to to actually fund and allow a randomized control trial to like actually like nail down for sure like Mm -hmm. is is this stuff fine or or is it not Mm um so yeah like don't don't expect this study to result in like sweeping changes to recommendations but it is kind of the first step down that road um so let, let's just shift gears very quickly a little bit to end on. So okay. I, I mentioned that the the only like negative finding in this study was that the the women in this study generally had higher rates of postpartum urinary incontinence than women in the general population. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do you know about urinary incontinence in in women and like lifters specifically? Mm-hmm. Not that much. I mean, basically just kind of like observing and like just knowing lifters. I think Mm -hmm. that it is a pretty common thing for women and especially for uh, lifters. Like during deadlifts, it is not uncommon at all for um, a woman to pee a little bit on the platform. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems like it definitely gets worse for a lot of people after they have had a baby. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, you 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 basically nailed it. Um Yes. Hell yeah. Found it. <laughs> so, yeah, for for listeners at home and and in particular male lifters cuz I or male listeners cuz I assume the women know this already. Like sometimes women pee themselves a little bit when they exercise. And mm-hmm. like that's like it's it's not a terribly uncommon thing. Right. Um, I, I think there's still generally a fair bit of embarrassment that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. 
And I think a lot of that embarrassment just comes from how how people respond to it because they think that it's abnormal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, hey, th- this is this thing that doesn't normally happen, shouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. And like, it's it's like weird and bad that uh, there's, this, there's this woman who like peed a little bit on the deadlift platform or mm-hmm. whatever. And so like people are kind of mean about it and that increases the stigma and yeah, people, people feel bad. But that, like it's... It's not. It's not a super uncommon thing. Yeah, like, I don't know the numbers, but just like off the top of my head, it feels like it happens to like forty percent of women, like a lot. Yeah, so that's um, that's actually like a pretty a pretty good guess. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, yeah. So in in this study, it was it was like fifty seven percent of the participants. Right. But in the general population, it's still like 33%. And so like we're... And that's after childbirth. Yeah, p- postpartum. Yeah, okay. Um, so like in particular here, we're, we're talking about stress incontinence. So there, there are a few different things that can cause urinary incontinence. And stress incontinence is basically the... Like there, there's some sort of like mechanical perturbation, generally mm-hmm. an increase in pressure mm-hmm. that puts pressure on the bladder. Yeah. And that just causes some urine right. to, to leak out, um, generally due to weakening or damage to the pelvic floor muscles, or I think it's somewhat less commonly the, the urethral sphincter. Um, don't like that word. It, it's not a great word, but that's the word. I don't, I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. Your body has a lot of sphincters and I think people feel weird about it because they mostly only think of your butthole, but, uh, you, you, okay. you got, you got sphincters <laughs> separating like everything. Head to toe. Yeah, like everything in your uh, digestive tract, like there's one that separates your esophagus from your stomach. There's yeah. one that separates your stomach from your small intestine, yeah. small to large. And then, yeah, you, you got you got your butthole. But okay. sphincters are useful and they're they're all over the place. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I think that I, I wanted to address the yeah. higher rates of, of stress incontinence seen in this study, like relative to the general population. Cause I, I do think there is still the, the thought in some people's minds that like lifting will increase your, your risk of developing stress incontinence. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's true. Mm. Um, I think that it is a, I think that it is observed more frequently in lifters right. because because they're lifting, yes. basically. So yeah. if if you have stress incontinence, basically if if uh, enough pressure is put on your bladder, some urine will will leak out, mm-hmm. and like it is what it is. Mm-hmm. But if you're not a lifter, mm-hmm. you're just going through day to day life. Um, when's that going to happen? Like not yeah. I mean, I think with I think with some women specifically postpartum, it's like sneezing, sneezing or laughing, coughing, laughing, coughing, yeah. jumping, jumping. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. common one, um, or or like picking something up. Like if you yeah. if you're not like doing a max deadlift, but like yeah. maybe you need to move a dresser or something like uh-huh. that. You strain a little bit, you pee a little bit. It is what it is. Yeah. Um. So like with, with stress incontinence, it's it's basically like a threshold problem. Like if the pressure gets above kind of your personal incontinence threshold, some, some urine will leak out. Mm-hmm. And basically just like the, the intra-abdominal pressure and just like the general pressure on your bladder 
when you're pulling a max deadlift or doing a max squat yeah. is just way, way more pressure right. than you would be putting on your bladder. It's more than like sneezing, you know, or yeah, laughing yeah, or whatever. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I bet like a lot of the women that it happens to while lifting, it doesn't happen when just like sneezing or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, exactly. So I I think that essentially what what's going on here is that like, maybe like 50% of women would have a little bit of incontinence if they pulled a max deadlift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and about 30% of women would have a little bit of incontinence not being a power lifter yeah. and just laughing, sneezing, coughing, jumping, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so it's essentially that, that 20% delta is just a matter of like, mm-hmm. hey, it's it's just because like 30% of women kind of have a lower threshold, 20% have a higher threshold. If you're not a lifter, if you would have incontinence, but it's kind of that higher threshold thing, you're, you're just not going to experience it because you're not ever like putting that much pressure right. on your bladder. Yeah. Whereas if if you're a lifter, you will. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that that's, you know, like I'm I'm not a... Uh, doctor certainly, and, and not like a specialist in this area. But that, yeah. that that's that's my read of of this literature. That uh-huh. it, um, if you have some sort of like if if you have stress incontinence, it like lifting will probably reveal that to you, but it probably doesn't actually increase your probability of developing incontinence. Or if you already have it, it probably doesn't actually make it worse. Uh, and in kind of the the evidence supporting that is um th- so like i said in this study it the exercise variables themselves weren't related to um like the risk of postpartum incontinence like the the women who kept training hard didn't have higher rates of postpartum incontinence than the women who didn't like it it didn't and like if exercise was the causal factor you would expect to see associations between exercise variables and mm-hmm. and rates of of uh, postpartum incontinence and there's also uh, additional research on powerlifters so there was a 2021 study by uh, Wickander and colleagues urinary incontinence in competitive women powerlifters uh, a cross sectional survey and i mean basically what they found is that um like rates of incontinence were associated with like age, like mm-hmm. rates go up as you get older. Yep. How many kids you have. Yep. And uh yep, that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um it, it was also it, it was also like associated to some extent um with with years of powerlifting, but years of powerlifting is also associated with age. Yes. And that was a... That's how time works. Yes. Uh, and, but that was a like weak association that was not statistically significant. Mm-hmm. Same with total years of strength training. Um, that, that was actually a weak negative association, also non-significant. Um, and so, yeah, like if, uh, if, if it was like a causal thing that like heavy resistance yeah. training actually increased your risk... Um, you would expect there to be like an exposure thing yeah. there. Like the longer you've been doing it, the higher the rates are. But yeah, like it it just seems like, yeah, if if you have more kids and if you're older, it's more likely to happen. Yeah. That's true for lifters. It's true for the general population. And lifting itself doesn't seem to meaningfully affect your risk, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are um just like normal 
lifting exercises that you would be doing able to increase the strength of the pelvic floor or is that something that has to be targeted specifically oh man so i i could wade into what i know to be a pretty big uh uh, argument oh no okay sorry and i (laughs) that was just like a off the top of my head question yeah so i i could but i'm not going to yeah please don't Um, but i'll 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 present the perspectives that exist um one is that one one is that some like pelvic pelvic health specialists mm-hmm. think that uh like lifting heavy especially with a belt while doing the valsalva maneuver is actually bad for your pelvic floor muscles and increases your rates of incontinence so i mm-hmm. whatever i'll wade into it i don't think that's true but the the mm-hmm. the thing supporting it basically is like if you conceptualize your your abdomen as like a, a pressure vessel, mm-hmm. which hey, we know a lot more about that due to the Titan sub we uh, do. disaster. Yeah. So um, yeah, yeah, whatever. This is going to be a terrible analogy. Um, oh, no. So just imagine <laughs> that your your uh, the 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 circumference of your torso itself, like your tummy, your sides, your back, yeah. are are the walls of that pressure vessel, and yeah. the your your diaphragm is the is the top of it mm-hmm. or, or now nah, let's go with the bottom of it okay and then your pelvic floor is like the the porthole that a lot of people think oh was no like, was the the weakness <laughs> the weak spot that, that made it go um so if if you conceptualize it that way um essentially like as as you're pressing down like your your diaphragm's locked in it's not really going anywhere mm-hmm. you got a belt on around your abdomen that's mm-hmm. not really going anywhere mm-hmm. so if you have excess pressure yep. that's going to put strain on your pelvic floor muscles and kind of stress them and like yeah. stretch them out a little bit um again like if that were true i would think that like time spent competing in powerlifting would be positively associated with urinary incontinence and it's not so i don't think that's what's going on but that that is a perspective that exists yeah, okay. that that, pl- that plenty of people who know who who have looked into this way more than i have find credible mm-hmm. so that's just your layman's opinion yeah my my layman's opinion don't take it too seriously don't get too mad at me so that that is one perspective mm-hmm. um the other perspective is that, like, yeah, that's like kind of neutral. But, um, oh, oh, so, so, like, to to continue that perspective, mm-hmm. um, they they basically say that, um, so like the the belt, like maybe that's kind of sketchy. Who knows? But you can still lift heavy. But it's it's better if you don't use the Valsalva maneuver. Maybe don't use a belt, mm. but brace in a way that as you're as you're tensing the muscles of your abdominal wall, you're also like tensing and like pulling kind of up and in on your pelvic floor muscles. Yeah. Um, and that like as as you're doing that, like that will strengthen your pelvic floor right. muscles as you're doing any other kind yeah. of exercise. So like. It's it's something you can do, but it's maybe not something that would be done by the way people would generally brace for heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other the other perspective is basically mine, which is just that if it's probably fine, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and 
like you you could you so basically the the thing about like bracing differently where you're like tensing and like drawing up and in your pelvic floor muscles like that that probably is is good regardless mm-hmm. um but kind of the the alternate perspective is like dude you, no you can still wear a belt like you can do a valve salva maneuver as a power as most power lifters would do it and that's not going to like independently cause like more weakness or damage to your pelvic floor muscles but then like out independent of like your heavy squats and deadlifts you can just do like pelvic floor muscle training yeah and that's fine yeah um so yeah like those those are kind of the two the two directions and either way like you can do pelvic floor training it's it's good for you like yeah there's, yeah it's, it's fine mm-hmm. but yeah so that's that that's what i got there okay um so do, do you have any closing thoughts on this topic Lindsay lou hmm I think I'm, overall, I'm just um, heartened, like we have, we've used that word a couple times now, that these exercise guidelines keep moving forward, um, especially since it is kind of hard to update them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it seems like a lot of research doesn't take women's issues or like things that affect women particularly seriously. So it's nice to see a body of literature that does seem to be taking this seriously and does seem to be like putting in the work to make sure that guidelines are being updated and that mm-hmm. women are able to like make choices and um, keep training if they want to yeah. and do that in a way that they can feel good about. And uh, I guess I just, I salute the pregnant women out here squatting in gyms and having to deal with everyone knowing all of the old exercise guidelines and trying to tell them how to live their life. Yeah. Yeah. More, more power to them. Yeah. Not, not a life I would want to lead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So I, th- I think that wraps up this episode. Um, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to give us any feedback uh, again, the, the best places are probably the stronger by science Facebook group or subreddit. Um, also, as I mentioned previously, we're, we're going to do audio Q&A. So if you have a question for the podcast, record a voice memo. Try to keep it under 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Definitely keep it under 60. If I open it and it's a minute and five seconds, I'm not listening to it. Like, don't send it if it's over 60 seconds. But try to keep it under 30. Uh, send that to... You're laughing. No, I'm, I'm being la- serious. I know I'm, you're serious. I'm not listening to a five-minute question. I know. I don't have the time or desire to Why do that. I'm laughing is because I think we just recorded like a two-hour episode, and they're listening to this, and now we're being like, we will not listen to you for more than 60 seconds. Keep it brief. I know, because that's the thing. Like, We have too much to say. Yeah, you ask a question, we're going to spend 45 minutes answering it. (laughs) If your question itself is 10 minutes, the show is going to get ludicrously long. It hasn't already, but it will. Yeah, so so keep it snappy. Like, you... You need to be brief because we are incapable of doing so. <laughs> um, so yeah, if, if you have those questions, send them to uh, podcast at strongerbyscience.com. Um, if you enjoy the podcast, rate, review it uh, on whatever podcasting platform you use. Make sure to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. And uh, we're excited to be back. Yeah, we are. <laughs>